Hi, Ellen here. You're about to hear a slightly different show today, and that's for a very important reason. That reason is we are currently in our supporter drive at 2SER. It's the two weeks of the year where we ask you, our listeners, to help keep the lights on for another 12 months. You can become a supporter by visiting support.2ser.com and you can also make a tax-deductible donation. So what that means for this week's episode is that we are taking a little break. You're about to hear one new story and one of our favourites in this week's podcast. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with the usual format. And from me, a big thanks to everyone who has already supported 2SER. It really means a lot. Okay, here's the show. This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. October 15 is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day, and today we are taking a look at Australia's first study into perinatal mortality. We're also going to be revisiting one of our stories from earlier this year about stillbirth. Well, the good news is Australia is one of the safest places to give birth with the overall perinatal mortality rate remaining fairly stable over the last 20 years. That's the result of a new report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare looking at Australia's perinatal mortality rates. Perinatal mortality is an umbrella term that encapsulates stillborn babies and babies that die within the first four weeks of life. The bad news is that the stillbirth rate has increased between 1993 and 2012. Amy Monk is a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and was a lead author of the report. So perinatal mortality is basically covers the death of babies who are either born as stillbirths or babies that die in the first month of life. And for both stillbirths and neonatal deaths, for them to be counted as stillbirths and neonatal deaths, they have to be born over 20 weeks gestation, so at 20 weeks gestation or over. And for stillbirths, they need to, if they're not born over 20 weeks gestation, they need to also be over 400 grams birth weight. So what would cause a baby to die in the first month of life? Oh, all sorts of things. It depends on when the baby is born at what gestation. So babies who are born generally at or before 24 weeks gestation, it's it's very difficult to resuscitate and keep those babies alive and well beyond that period of time. Um, so the main causes of stillbirth and neonatal death in the report that came out recently from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare were congenital abnormalities, and that accounted for about a third of neonatal death and about a quarter of stillbirths. And what are congenital abnormalities? So they're, um, they're abnormalities like a chromosomal abnormality or a problem that a baby's born with that makes the baby unable to survive. So it might be a physical, they're usually physical issues. 
So this is the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare report that has just been released. How is Australia tracking on perinatal mortality? Really well. It's one of the safest countries in the world to give birth. And even looking over the last 20 years, the trends in perinatal mortality have been fairly stable in Australia. We've seen a slight downwards trend in neonatal deaths and an upwards trend in stillbirths, which is interesting. But on the whole, in relation to other countries, we're, we're pretty good. Why is there an increase in stillbirths? Um, so it's an interesting one and AHW reported that overall uh, over that 20-year period from 93 to 2012 there was a 13% increase in stillbirths. It's really unclear why there is that 13% increase in stillbirths. Um, the report that AHW did it's only descriptive so they don't look at causation at all and there wasn't enough data to look at the causes of death over that 20-year period because that came from a slightly different collection. And interestingly, when I was reading the report, Victoria has the highest rate of perinatal mortality. Yes. Victoria had the highest rate of stillbirth and New South Wales the lowest rate of stillbirth. But again, you have to be really careful with how you interpret that data. It doesn't mean that if you go and have a baby in in Victoria that your baby's more likely to die. Sometimes what happens in large states like Victoria are that women who live in country towns on the border say of New South Wales and Victoria may go into Victoria if they have a higher risk pregnancy rather than travelling further to a higher risk hospital in New South Wales. But again, it's one of those things that we don't have the answer for that. And Indigenous mothers, what are the trends for Indigenous mothers over the last 20 years? So over the last 20 years, it's been really good, actually. We've seen a reduction in the overall perinatal mortality rate of babies of Indigenous mothers of about 20%. And that's a really nice, clear line showing that that gap between perinatal mortality of babies of Indigenous mothers compared to non-Indigenous mothers is um, slowly closing. But there is certainly still a long way to go. Although the gap is decreasing between babies of Indigenous and non-Indigenous mothers, they still have a much higher rate of perinatal mortality than babies of non-Indigenous mothers. So if you look at the overall population of babies born over a two-year period, over 2011-2012, 4% of those babies were born to Indigenous mothers. Yet they had, when you look at the rate of perinatal mortality, 17 babies per 1,000 births to Indigenous mothers resulted in a perinatal mortality compared to 9.6 babies out of every 1,000 babies born to non-Indigenous mothers. So there's a very big difference there still. It's still nearly double. This is the first report we've done of this kind in Australia. Yes. It's the first time we've looked at, or the first time AHW or any any group has looked at both neonatal deaths and stillbirths combined. So it's a very new and exciting report. And what can health practitioners take away from it or what can policymakers take away from it? They can take away a whole lot of things. There were a lot of things that came out of the report that were expected. So, for example, babies babies of mothers who live in very remote areas have the highest rate of perinatal mortality compared to those living in major cities. Babies of, of women who have high socioeconomic status have lower perinatal mortality rate compared to babies of mothers with low socioeconomic status. Um, smoking again confirmed what we already know that um, babies of mothers who smoke during the first or second half of pregnancy have higher perinatal mortality rates. Those sorts of risk factors that 
that we know already exist. This type of report confirms that. And what that enables policymakers to do is to target services to people who need it the most and to reduce that inequity or unfairness in those differences. Because there should be no reason that women who live in rural and remote areas have increased perinatal mortality compared to women living in major cities. Um, We need to look at targeting more services and things to those women to try and reduce that gap there. Amy Monk, lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. In light of Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day, we're going to be replaying a full interview with Dave and Ali. Dave and Ali shared their story as part of our stillbirth episode earlier this year. You can find that episode on the podcast as well. Dave and Ali's story is one of heartbreak and coping with the death of their stillborn baby, Harper. We hope that by sharing this story, it can help other parents in a similar situation. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm I'm Ali, and we're the parents of our little girl, Harper. Can you tell me what, what was it like to find out you were pregnant Exciting, really exciting. We, I was the, on the slightly older age of a first-time mum, but we were at a point in our lives where we were really ready to have a little, to start a little family, and it was really, really exciting. I think it was the same as every every parent. You know, is that it's like okay, we're doing it. You know, we have a, we have a baby on the way. I think I think everyone feels the same the same way. What What were you most looking forward to most about being parents? Everything. Yeah, a range of things. Um, We'd already decided some family traditions, like we were going to have reading hour once a week. Once a week? I think it was once a week. I thought it was once a day, wasn't it? I can't remember. (laughs) I can't remember. But um, sharing the things that we both loved and had in common that, that were appropriate to share with a child as they grew up, I think were... I think it's just, you know, it's just excitement of, you know, like everything, the the whole, the whole life of having a, of having a child and being, being a bigger family than, than than a couple. Um, You know, I'd see, we live in Bondi and you'd see parents with their, um, with their prams or with their little um, baby beyond things. Um, I was really looking forward to that, you know, just cruising Ali does laps at, at icebergs and I was looking forward to taking the baby for a walk while Ali did laps and just little day-to-day things yeah you know I guess adding to what we already have is a lovely life so it would be lovely to add to that and share it with with a child mm. when did you realize that something wasn't quite right uh it was a weekend and we went away for a weekend and I think on the Sunday I I had noticed that I hadn't felt a lot of lively kicking and I mentioned it today, but I could tell that, that my baby had changed positions. So we just initially thought, well, you know, he or she, we didn't know what we were having, um, was just being a little bit quiet because there was movement, you know, there was changing positions, but not a lot of kicking. And then the Monday morning I went to work and I still hadn't. And I phoned my midwife and Initially, she said, look, I'm sure everything's okay, but you have called me and the way that we work is if you called me, then I think you come in and see me because you know, obviously you feel there was a need to call me. So we, um, Dave picked me up and met me in the city and we 
went to the birth centre and they were fairly busy at the time, but initially they put on, they used a portable Doppler and they did sense a heartbeat, but they said, we'll take you to a bigger um, ultrasound machine. And when we got to that room, um, we were on a bed and they started the process again and then there was indication that that the machine wasn't working very well, so they called in, I think, a doctor at that stage, Dave, was it? It was either a doctor or, or a technician. And and, mm. um, and then I think there was a third person and there was kind of all this talk about the baby being hard to find and the machine being a little bit temperamental, and that's probably as much as I remember because it gets quite dark and heavy after that. So, but the baby being hard to find bit, that they said mm. that quite a few times and... We both knew something was up then because the heartbeat had never been hard to find. It was always, in every other checkup, it was like, oh, this baby's, you know, so so healthy and, and, and lively. You know, the heartbeat's right there. Going back um, to the movements, yeah. um, from what I understand, that's kind of one of the first signs when the baby isn't doing the movement that it's been doing for the past few weeks or months. Is that, was there anything else, anything in your experience? Had any midwives or doctors said to you, if you notice something different, call us as soon as possible? No. No, not really. No. But we knew that if if the if if there wasn't any movement, I guess you you know that that's kind of an obvious thing. But that was never it was never sort of. It was never highlighted. And, no, no, not yeah. specifically no. that. I mean, obviously, if if you felt something was wrong, the. You, you contact who are, you know, your health carer, but being really specific about movement in our experience, it wasn't something that had been brought up. And especially in in in, in that situation, um, as Ellie said, the baby was moving, just wasn't it's, it, like moving positions. It just wasn't kicking. Um, so we sort of just, you know, went in on that Monday morning, thinking everything would be okay. Um, and and as it turns out, the the heartbeat that they did, um, that they did pick up when we very first arrived was actually mine because by that stage, it was the first time that we had to go in for an unexpected reason. Everything else then had just been very routine. And I guess the distance from driving from the city to the birth centre, I became pretty anxious. So by the time I got there, I was quite anxious. So they they did pick up a heartbeat, and they thought it was the babies initially but it turned out to be mine mm. what happened next what happened next um we were taken to uh oh, this, no. this room that, oh. that that room that the ultrasound was in um and i've said i've said this a few times before but uh we, neither of us were looking at, at at the monitor um and i was sort of cradling ali's ali's head to try and you know keep her relaxed and the longer that you hear nothing, the worse that you know the news is going to be. Um, so there was maybe a, um, it probably might, it was only a minute worth of, you know of silence, um, but it felt like forever. Um, and I, th- I mean, it's a little bit blurry for me as well. But I think someone said, um, "I'm really sorry, but there's there's no heartbeat." And I looked up, and I saw the the monitor, and it was clear that there was no heartbeat. Um, and then, then they, then there must have been something in between this. But the next that I sort of remember was everyone at that stage there was sort of four or five uh, medical staff in the room, 
um, and they all left and and um, put a blanket over us and turned the lights out and um, unbeknownst to me called my sister and my sister at the time was uh, at UTS in in the city and it seemed like five minutes before she arrived but it must have been an hour at least um, for her to get a call from St George and then get in the car and drive down and um, so once she was there, we were taken down to a another room uh, for another ultrasound. Excuse, oh, excuse me, I, I'm getting it mixed up. Before Carol, before my sister turned up, we were taken to another ultrasound room. Yeah, a, a more a full kind of ultrasound suite, which suite. I guess is the final check yeah. to see that. And again, there was that silence for you know a few minutes, and um, I felt really sad for the the technician to have to tell us. I mean, it was it was her in the end that told us um, and even then I, w- I I didn't really believe it I was saying to people no 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 just this is can you check again this is wrong and you know we were then taken back to the room where we were just left on our own for a little while and probably the next part which was the really hardest part I remember just lying there thinking what on earth happens now because obviously I'm still I still have this baby and I just I couldn't think what possibly would happen next um and our midwife came and had a chat to us and probably this is the thing that changed our experience um and allowed us to take as much pleasure out of what was a terrifying and and tragic time for us because we weren't told what we should do we were given advice and we were given that advice very gently and um it was that if we what we could consider was to go home and come back the next day and be induced and go through the birth naturally as I had planned. And when I was told that, I just, I couldn't understand how you could possibly, or I could possibly do that. I certainly knew I didn't want to go and have surgery and have the whole thing just end in a medical kind of procedure. But, so I was really clear on what I didn't want but I still, for the life of me, couldn't really think how I could possibly go through with the birth, but there wasn't really any other option. So we decided to do that, and I think at that point I didn't decide that thinking I can do this. I decided that thinking, well, there is no other option. I can't do the other thing. I can't do the other, so mm-hmm. that's all there is. But and it, it was I've, so foreign. Sorry, Dave. It was just such a foreign moment that n- none of it made sense and none of it – there was no kind of – Rationale or no reasoning or no way of getting my head around what we were about to go through. It just felt it, you, it was like you were in this huge wasteland and there was nothing that looked familiar around it. That's how I felt. I found in, in my sort of state of shock at the time the idea that we would leave the hospital just ridiculous. And I guess that's a um, a point of view probably from a, a, male's, a male's point of view, you know, something's wrong we're in a hospital just fix it like you know we can fix this we can this baby is going to be okay um and the only place that we can fix this is in a hospital um and i hadn't sort of realized the enormity of it at that point um but i'm forever grateful that we did go home because it changed it changed the whole not the whole yes yeah, well guess. it separated the two so there's the day that we got you know the worst news imaginable and then Harper's birth is a completely separate um, 
occasion. So rather than the two blurring into, you know, this terrible day and then going through with the birth, we, we were able to separate them. When we went home that night, it didn't, again, it didn't put us in any better position and it, we didn't feel any clearer or have a, any you know, idea of what we were about to go through, but it did separate those two things. And when we arrived the next day at the hospital, um, we met a, a doctor and we, we've never met him, we, we had never met him afterwards, but his name was Chris and I think he might have been a registrar or I'm not really sure, but it was he had the job of just talking through what we could expect for the induction, which again was something that I had never given any thought of. So that was another part that, you know, I had no idea what to expect. So he talked us through that process. But more importantly, the very first thing he said to us when he met us was that he was sorry for our loss. And although our immediate family and friends, who we told the night before, gave us that support and love, you know, they knew us, where this was a stranger telling us those words which have since proved to be the most helpful thing that anyone can say to us and I'll never forget because for me at the time hearing those words it kind of clicked for me and I realised that even though this hadn't turned out the way we were hoping or planned I was about to have a child and be there no breath it was still our child and you know she was about to be born she or he at the time and I think in some way hearing that kind of shifted my thoughts a little bit and it gave me, a, it, I feel like it gave me strength to go through with the birth because it moved it from being this terrible loss to we are going to have this child even though we won't get to take her home and bring her up. So I'm, I'm, ever, I'm forever grateful to that lovely doctor, Chris, wherever he is now because I think it, I felt it put me in a good position to start what was an unexpected and, you know, heartbreaking um, 48 hours that I was about to go through. When you held Harper in your arms for the first time, what, what was going through your head? I think for part of it, like any um, new parents, you know, one of the first things that we did was talk about who she looked like. She had Dave's nose and ears and my mouth. Um, I, I think that's a good that's a good example of how we were grateful that we went home and went through with the birth because there are, there were a few moments in the birth where I can almost say that I, I had almost for, forgotten that she wasn't going to be born alive. You know, we had great care. The midwives that looked after us were amazing. Um, we felt like any other parents would feel when they were going through the birth of their child. So I think there was enough time that when she was born, there was enough time to sort of be able to enjoy it as much as we could and that sounds really strange but it was you I mean, know was, we were immediately full of love for it was it was heartbreaking but um yeah it was one of the it's, it's very hard to explain um we we held her for for quite a while um but it was it was just yeah very um we we got a few minutes of um, kind of peace from it, but it was very heartbreaking. It was very difficult uh, leaving her because Ali was so um, healthy and and the birth was so efficient. Um, we could go home that that afternoon later later that afternoon. Harper was born at lunchtime, and I think we left it, left the hospital early evening. But that was the that was really difficult leaving 
because you're not supposed to do that. You know, you don't you don't leave your child at the hospital um, if you can possibly help it. Um, yeah, so that was difficult. That whole that whole afternoon. I mean, not just the <laughs> afternoon, but um, yeah, it was that was a day. Yeah. How do you how do you cope with going home and instead of taking you know this beautiful baby girl home? You've now got to plan a funeral. Yeah, exactly. And 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 um, and do and do uh, things you never imagined doing, like uh, calling the. Um, you know, we're about to pick up the 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 pram, the stroller we just paid for, and we had to call the shop, and you know, just like mundane things like that. Um, instead of instead of like getting all this stuff together that, that we've spent the last few months getting together like a cot and a stroller and clothes and all that stuff that we had um, we had to start thinking about planning a funeral um, getting family down and looking at this stuff that we'd bought sitting in the, in, the, in the nursery every day that we had to then that was a whole other thing like all this stuff you know we did use um, because the induction took it was probably 48 hours around from when I when we checked into when Harper was born, and part of that time we did talk about planning her funeral, and we talked about the things. There were some immediate things that we wanted to do that were special for her. So I guess we had again. It's not what you should be doing when you're about when you're in a hospital and you're waiting for your baby to be born. You know, planning a funeral is not what you're supposed to do. But we did take the opportunity to use that time very gently to make some. Let's just start thinking about it. Most of the time was probably... We spent a lot of time in that 48 hours um, uh, naming her because we had names, but we thought that... Obviously, we had names if it was a boy or a girl, but we thought that because this little girl was was just going to be a little angel, um, she needed her own new name. That was something that we hadn't thought of. So we, you know, we used our time doing thinking about that and... um, starting to think about what we were going to do next um, but then getting home um, that that week between her birth and her funeral we both we, we're both busy people we like to be busy and we work hard and we work a lot um, so we just threw ourselves into organizing everything right down to the last you know everything like we didn't really stop for the entire week, did we? Was... No. And um, the funeral home where Harper went was run by this... Well, the woman that w- was our contact was this amazing woman called Debbie. And we had... Um, we visited Harper each day. And, and despite our best efforts, no matter how hard we tried, every single day... I, I'd, because we seemed to be keeping ourselves so busy, every single day we got there, we were late... But every day she had Harper out in the little chapel with the lights dimmed and beautiful music playing there waiting for us. And um, we went there every day right up to the day that we picked picked yeah. her up. And that was... that was we, We're really grateful that we were able to do that. And when our parents, who all live in the state, came down, you know, they were able to come and meet their little granddaughter. But the funeral home was offering all the, all the services that they mm-hmm. did... Um, you know, organising flowers, and we said, "No, no, we'll do that." And then organising um, 
their little booklet and I said, no, no, we'll do that. So everything... Organising the urn, I will do that. <laughs> we kind of, we felt relieved when she finally said, well, what about a notice for the Sydney Morning Herald? Yes, you can do that. <laughs> did that. So, yes, they, they had very little to do because we just wanted to do everything because you don't get a chance to do anything else. Um, as strange as it sounds, even um, even things like uh, the day of her funeral, um, the hearse. I mean, babies have very small coffins, uh, and we didn't see the need for for her to travel in a hearse, you know, by by herself. So we picked her up in our in our car and took her to the church and and took her to uh, the crematorium after the after the service. Um, so we we just wanted to do everything. So for that week, we just kept extraordinarily busy um, and the day after the funeral was probably one of the toughest wasn't it because mm. it's like well that's yeah that well, terrible it's, aftermath it's, it's like it's like real life now um, yeah so we didn't know what to do we ran away funeral. we ran away mm. we literally bought two tickets to Italy it was in the middle of winter here um, we went to this little town called Assisi in, in Italy um, a little hilltop town and just hid, <laughs> thinking that that would be good. But, of course... It was while we were there. It helped while we were there. The anonymity helped. It, it did, It did. but it, I guess we were running away from... Something that would from always... From babies. You know, not yeah. babies, but one of the things that was really tough, just after the funeral, we went had to go to um, a Bondi Junction shopping centre, and the woman in front of us had the exact same stroller and a baby about six months old and it was like right so I think that was really difficult so we thought we'd run away for a while but then there's babies in Italy as well (laughs) (laughs) Um, there's babies everywhere it also helped it helped us to be away from you know the constant everyday reminders of, of, of our life and what we should have been doing and we knew that wouldn't last but I don't. I don't know what else we would have done. So that's what we did for a little while, and then then we came back to Sydney, which was much harder than what we'd ever anticipated. Um, really hard, and that's between getting back from being away. The next kind of few months, it, for me, it just felt I could feel a hole growing, and it was just getting bigger and bigger. And that's tough. Yeah, that was, it was little things. Crossing. There were days where crossing the street was really difficult. Like I, I'd do it, but I. Or I'd go to pick up dry cleaning, and one day it took me four attempts. The first time I left, I walked in and paid and left the dry cleaning there. Then I went in again and picked up the dry cleaning and left my wallet there. And this went on four times just to do a really simple act like that. So things, yeah, became really, really heavy. Do you still still, um, think about that now? So uh, you're saying that Harper would be 10 in May this year. Do you think about what grade she'd be in at school? all the time yeah. I mean that's you can't you can't not um, we've got some some friends who have kids little girls who are around about the same age and um, you see photos on Facebook and think oh, that you know that's how big art would be now and but um, I think though for us for each since since she was born and for each year we've always you know I don't think there's a moment where she's not in in my thoughts you can be doing everything else and be thinking about other things but she's certainly our first thought thought in the morning and last thought at night but the milestones of you know starting school or doing all of those things you they don't go unnoticed at all and we'd planned with we're not planned but we'd thought about what school she she would be attending and um you know so you drive past those schools now and you think it's it's always there it's always in the back of your mind 
Mm. What would you tell your past selves when you're going through that experience? Would, would anything back then have really helped you through that? Um, just that, that, that you do get through it. You know, um, like 12 years ago, our life plan was probably to have a few kids by now and, and be, you know, living in a, you know, all settled down in a house with, you know, kids in school and stuff. Um, but it didn't work out that way. And, and, and you have to embrace what you have got. You know, we've, we're both healthy. We both have, you know, great families. Um, so I guess, yeah, there was a time after Harper died that it was kind of despairing. I was like, what, you know, this is, nothing's going to ever be all right again. Um, but, you know, it, it is. It would be better if she was here. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything that I would have done in terms of coping with the experience or how we got through it. I don't think there's anything that I would have done differently because you can't take away those really dark days. And I think those really dark days and the days that are, that are better and the ways that you learn to kind of enjoy and embrace her, I think that all makes part of the story and part of the picture. And I think, like any anything in life, you know, there's there's good things and there's bad things and that, that makes the whole journey. And even though ours is not what certainly what we have wanted, I'm, I still think that that's all of those things that happened had to happen for us to get to the point where we are. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, it yeah. takes a, takes a while to get here, and I think I, it's almost ten years since we lost her, and I think it's only been the last three or four that we've really hit our stride again. Thanks for listening to the show today. For more info and transcripts, visit twoser dot com forward slash thinkhealth. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health and Two SER. And remember, if you want to show your love for 2SER this supporter drive, support.2ser.com is the place to go. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. See you next week.